you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. In the last episode, I discussed three cases from the game L.A. Noir based on real ones, each of which varied in the amount of deviation from the facts of the actual story. As I said there, I had been aware that the homicide cases were based on real ones. However, it wasn't until I actually started researching more in depth the facts of each case that I began to realize just how closely these cases stuck to events, sometimes not even really changing the names of places or people. For example, in the part of the game based on the Evelyn Winters case, whose name here is Evelyn Summers, there is a suspect by the name of James Tiernan, a bowling alley employee, who's questioned and picked up. In the real one, there was a man named James Tiernan, employee of a bowling alley, who was spoken with. In the one based on the Laura Trellstad case, a man named Benny Clough was bartender at the bar she had been drinking at. In reality... You guessed it. But I suppose we should get started, since we do have five stories to get through. A native of Axtell, Texas, Jean Axford was born in 1902. Her family moved to Harrison, Oklahoma when she was young. When Jean was 18, she married David Rather of Amarillo and settled there. She and David had a son, also named David. When the two divorced in 1924, she retained custody of the boy and moved to Los Angeles. Here she married a second time to David S. Thomas. It's unclear when they divorced, but it seems to be after this that she begins to work as a nurse, associated with a petroleum company with interests in South America. She then went on to get a pilot's license, and in October of 1931, she married another Texan, an engineer named Curtis Bauer. The marriage lasted only five weeks, following which she remained single for over a decade before marrying for a fourth time to Frank French, a Marine, in 1944. She married Frank in North Carolina, following which they moved to South Carolina and then back to Los Angeles. This marriage doesn't seem to have been particularly amicable, though. Jean apparently turned to drink pretty heavily, and she and Frank were always getting into fights. In fact, Frank had been arrested for beating his wife in February and was released only a week before. Around 8.30 a.m. on the morning of February 10, 1947, Hugh Shelby, a construction worker, was driving a bulldozer across a field off Grandview Avenue, selected as a site of a new housing development, 
when he saw a pile of clothing lying up ahead. Drawing closer, he saw that the clothes were laid atop of the dead body of a woman. When Detectives Lee Jones and Harry Hansen arrived on scene, they cataloged the clothing on the pile, a fur coat, and a burgundy dress. Two shoes, apparently the dead woman's, had been arranged one on either side of the head. Nearby lay a black purse, inside of which were found a few hairpins, a note with the address of the Green Gobbler cabins in Minnesota, and a single penny. Also found was a white handkerchief. Pushing aside the pile of clothing, it was immediately apparent that the woman had been viciously beaten, kicked, and stomped. She had been hit in the head with something heavy, a tire iron or wrench, probably. Both her neck and jaw were broken, and a rib had punctured her heart. She was naked save for a bra, but was later identified, through laundry marks on the clothing, as 45-year-old Jean French. Most disturbingly of all, on her stomach was scrawled a message in red lipstick. The message read, Fuck you, BD, Tex. Some accounts state that the apparent name Tex was followed by an O or a D. Here, there seems to be a misconception. Although the media seized on the letters BD as meaning, predictably, Black Dahlia, police surgeon Frederick Newbar made a note that it seemed to actually be PD, police department, most likely, appearing as a B to the detectives because the first letter seemed to overlap with one of the heel prints. A pool of blood was found on Grandview Avenue nearby, and the detectives theorized that Jean had been attacked inside her car, but had gotten out before she was struck with whatever instrument was used. She was apparently dragged from this spot into the field where she was found. By the next day, things had begun to heat up. Calling Minnesota to check on the address found in Jean's purse, police discovered that they had apparently misread Jean's handwriting. No green gobbler cabins existed in Shakopee, but there was a green Gables cabins. The operator of these cabins, L.M. Garvey, said that Jean French answered the description of a woman who had been living there in 1946 with her husband and son. Almost as soon as she was identified, police were aware, were aware of Frank's arrest earlier that month. When they determined that he and Jean were to go to the lawyer's office at 11 a.m. on the day of the murder, and that Frank never showed, they grew more suspicious. The suspicion was only furthered when they discovered that Frank had gone to work at an aircraft factory at 7.15 that morning, and left at 10.45. Then the appointment was missed. Frank French was picked up in Santa Monica for questioning. At first, he denied having seen his wife for several days, claiming that it was she who never showed up for the appointment. Then he admitted that she had come to his apartment at about 11 the night before, noticeably drunk. The two fought for an hour, and then she stormed out. Also questioned by police was Jean's son, David rather, but he wasn't able to tell police much of anything. The autopsy found that Jean's alcohol level was twice the legal limit. Cause of death was blood loss, although the coroner couldn't determine exactly which of her many injuries proved to be the fatal one. He thought it was the initial blow to the head, meaning she was likely dead or nearly so when she was beaten. But the biggest break came when Jean's car was finally found in the parking lot of a diner at the corner of Washington Place and Sepulveda Boulevard. The watchman at a business nearby, Tony Angioni, was able to tell police that he saw a man parking the car in the lot around 3.10 the night of the murder. 
Jean's movements the night of the murder were reconstructed as nighttime employees at various eateries and bars around Santa Monica and Venice contacted police. Between 9.30 and 10, she was at a diner on Santa Monica Boulevard, complaining loudly to employee Ray Fecker about her husband. He was sadistic, she said, and had beaten her. She showed him a black eye that her husband had given her. Then she was in a bar on Venice Boulevard, saying she was going to have her husband committed to the VA hospital psych ward. It seems to be at this point that she goes to Frank's room and fights with him. Marshall Watkins then saw her at the Turkey Bowl Diner, obviously drunk, talking with another woman, and complaining loudly of someone she said was, quote, a bum. Then she got in a car parked four feet off from the curb and drove off erratically. The last few sightings of her come from various bars in Washington Place, almost all in the company of a slightly built, dark-skinned man with a mustache and curly hair. Last came from Mrs. Antonio Manilados at the Pan American Bar in West Washington Place, following which Jean and the dark man entered an older model car. Then the case against who was up to that point the main suspect began to fall apart. Frank's shoe prints didn't match the size of the prints on Jean's body, and the case truly fell apart when Frank's alibi was confirmed. His landlady backing him up and testifying that he hadn't left his apartment again after Jean stormed out at midnight. Frank French was released on February 14th. The suspect pool was then narrowed only to one. The dark man Mrs. Manilados had described. The fact that she mentioned his being quite small was interesting, since Jean had been stomped to death with men's size 6 or 7 shoes, quite small. A protective detail was posted at Mrs. Manilados' house in case the man came after her, but no one ever did. On February 15th, the same day Eugene White's car was found in an Alameda rail yard, an elderly newspaper publisher named Alfred Hige was killed by an employee he had just fired, his body dismembered with the blade of a paper cutter. The murderer, a Polish man by the name of Otto Parzi Zegla, was to be questioned in connection with the murders of both Elizabeth Short and Jean French. But this questioning went nowhere. Another possible lead presented itself on February 25th. A 23-year-old woman named Grace Sanger reported that as she sat at a bus stop on Venice Boulevard near Prospect Avenue, a man walked up, shined a flashlight in her face, and said, Is that you, Isabel? After that, he loitered around and spoke to her for nearly 20 minutes, before putting on black gloves, pulling out a knife, and stealing her purse. It seemed completely unrelated to the French case, until Grace revealed that during their conversation, the man had helpfully offered the information that he was an attendant at a gas station at 3870 Sepulveda Boulevard, only a block from the diner where Jean's car was found. Describing the man to the owner of the station, they received a name and an address, Apparently, the assailant had, actually, given Grace his real employer. He was Francis Kerner, also known as Bud Lacey or Francis Lasick. Going to the address provided, they discovered that he, his wife, and their son had all left. Further investigation revealed that his wife worked at the diner Jean's car was parked at, and that he had been hanging around there that night, and the police resolved to haul him in for questioning. He was eventually tracked down later that year in prison in Nebraska. He was eventually charged with the attack on Grace Sanger, though not the murder of Jean French. In 1948, Frank French was once again arrested, 
this time for attacking his then-landlady, not the same one spoken to with in this case, with a broken bottle. There's a few aspects of this case that I questioned as I was writing it up. For one, the fact that the body of an ex-pilot was found immediately adjacent to the Santa Monica airport is odd. One other facet that I never heard mentioned is that the message on her scrawled on her body was signed Tex. Jean was from Texas. Had someone from her past tracked her down? One other thing I found odd was an almost throwaway description in some of the coverage of the murder on February 12th. It's worth quoting in full. Residents within a two-mile radius of where Mrs. French's body was found were being warned yesterday by uniformed policemen to be on the alert against possible forays by a degenerate believed to be in the area. A known molester of women, the man was described as husky, with sun-bleached or peroxided hair, dressed in dirty jeans and flannel shirt. He is thought to live in his automobile, a Model A Ford, the officers said. Why was this warning issued? There doesn't seem to be anything else alluding to this man. But the description's a little bit too specific to just be a general warning about possible sex offenders in the neighborhood. Around 10.30 on the morning of May 3rd, 1947, G.W. Thompson of 9115 Grape Street was out working on his car when he noticed a white object lying in a vacant lot across the street from his home, underneath a pepper tree. Drawing closer, he realized it was the body of a woman, and he called police. Inspector Norris Stensland from the Sheriff's Office arrived on scene, accompanied by Lieutenant Pete Sutton and Captain Virgil Gray of the LAPD. In the lot on Grape Street, investigators found that the woman had been bludgeoned, strangled, and her clothes were torn. Only one shoe was on. A purse lay nearby, its contents scattered around it as if it had been looked through hurriedly. The woman was identified from these as 36-year-old Dorothy Montgomery, who had been reported missing the night before. It appeared nothing was taken from the purse, but her wedding and engagement rings were taken from her finger and a watch was removed. An autopsy later determined that though her scalp had been lacerated from the blow to her head, it hadn't been fatal. She had also been strangled from behind. And though the torn clothing suggested otherwise to the detectives, she was to prove to have not been sexually assaulted. Going to Dorothy's home, they spoke to her husband, Thomas Montgomery, and their 15-year-old daughter, Maceal. Thomas told them that he had last seen his wife at about 9.30 the night before, when she left to pick up Maceal from a dance at a Hooper Avenue rec center. When their daughter returned home shortly after 11, Thomas called and reported his wife missing. A few hours before her body was discovered, Maceal went looking for her mother. She found her car parked across from the rec center she had left the night before, but she could have sworn it hadn't been there when she left. The investigators went to where the car had been parked. They found a small bit of blood on the chrome beneath the door. The doors were locked, and the ignition was partially on. I take it that what they meant is how the ignition on a car can be off, on, or then there's an in-between setting where the motor's off, but you can still run the electric systems. I take it it was that. Nothing else of interest was to be found in the car, but a woman's shoe matching the one Dorothy Montgomery wore lay in the street behind the car. A nearby resident named James Kennedy told police that he had seen the car parked the night before 
by a tall man in a light shirt and dark pants with light hair. He was partially bald, perhaps middle-aged. This puzzled police. Dorothy Montgomery's keys had still been in her purse. On May 6, a man named Wallace Fortier, in jail for having kidnapped and sexually assaulted a 13-year-old girl near Buena Park, was questioned by police. Fortier fit the, the description of the man seen by James Kennedy. Kennedy could not identify Fortier as the man who had parked the car, though. Later that same day, a man calling himself Deputy Smith came to the Kennedy home at 6112 Hooper Avenue. Mrs. Kennedy answered the door, and the supposed deputy asked for James. She thought he resembled her husband's description of the suspect, however, so she lied and told the man that he wasn't home. On May 11th, though, police arrived back at the Montgomery home and arrested Thomas Montgomery for his wife's murder. Dorothy's older daughter, who no longer lived at the home, had found a piece torn from Dorothy's purse in the garage and later saw her father burning it. He was then identified as the man who had parked the car by James Kennedy. Thomas went on trial in July before Judge Clement D. Nye. Prosecuting was Assistant District Attorney James Fredericks, and defending was Forrest Betts. During the trial, other neighbors began to change their tune. The marriage wasn't the happy one Thomas had originally portrayed. The daughters told police they had witnessed fights between their parents on several occasions, and in fact had seen their father attempt to strangle their mother. A neighbor named Horace Stanford said that he had been in his backyard on the night of May 2nd when he heard screams coming, he thought, from the front of the Montgomery house around 9 o'clock. He ran out front, heard two more screams, and then the Montgomery's car drove off hurriedly. Another neighbor named Louis Wagner testified at Thomas's trial to the same, though he thought the screaming was a bit later, perhaps sometime between 9.30 and 10. The contention of the state was that Mrs. Montgomery had been slain in the home, and then Thomas drove the body out to the lot on Grape Street, tried to make it look like a robbery, and then parked the car back at the rec center. Thomas got emotional when he took the stand on July 31st, admitting that he and Dorothy had had several violent arguments, but tearfully denying that he had killed her. But in a rather unsatisfying end, the jury of seven women and five men deliberated for an hour and a half before voting to acquit Thomas of the charge. Neither of the daughters looked at or spoke to Thomas Montgomery as they left the courtroom. After the trial, Maciel left Los Angeles and went to live with her grandparents back in Kansas. She stayed here until late 1950, at which time she returned to Los Angeles and got married. She died in 1991 and is buried in Kansas with her mother. Thomas Montgomery died in 1965. The next of the three crimes was only a momentary diversion in the news cycle, and I suppose, rather unsurprisingly to those who follow true crime, it was one with a non-white victim. Rosenda Martinez of New Mexico married Antonio Mondragon in 1943 when she was only 16. The couple moved to Los Angeles, where they moved in with Rosenda's sister Trinidad and lived at 1925 Gates Street in the Lincoln Heights section of the city. At some point in May of 1947, the marriage had disintegrated to the point that 20-year-old Rosenda moved from that address into her own at 826 South Crocker, only a matter of blocks from O'Connor electroplating. So it wasn't necessarily a surprise to Antonio 
when he was served with divorce papers early on the morning of July 8th. About an hour later, Rosenda herself showed up, extremely drunk. She and her soon-to-be ex-husband argued for about half an hour, with her leaving the residence at about 2.30 in the morning. Antonio said he shortly went out after her to offer her a ride home. She made her way down to a grocery store and called a cab from the phone. But before the cab could arrive, or Antonio spoke to his wife, a dark car drove up and the driver, a husky blonde man, probably about 30, spoke to Rosenda and offered her a ride. She accepted. Then at about 3.30 that morning, a postal worker named Newton Joshua was on his way to work when he saw a naked woman lying near the corner of Elmira and North Main Streets. Police quickly identified the woman as Rosenda Mondragon as she had been arrested for public drunkenness a year before. A large bruise told police she had been struck in the face, though death was due to being garroted with a silk stocking. The silk stocking was found about a block away. The rest of her clothing was found discarded some blocks to the north at Griffin Avenue and East Avenue 26. Although nude, the woman had apparently not been sexually assaulted. Abrasions and bruising on her body indicated that she had been killed and perhaps thrown from a car. Her jewelry, a ring and a necklace, seemed to have been left on the body, although her purse was never found. Antonio was picked up on suspicion of having killed Rosenda on the basis of his initial statement that he returned home after seeing Rosenda enter the car, conflicting with his statement gathered from Trinidad that he hadn't returned home for several hours. He was given a lie detector test and questioned some more, at which point it came out that he had actually driven to Rosenda's apartment to wait for her, but she never showed. Antonio Mondragon was released on July 12th, and after this, the murder of Rosenda Mondragon leaves the press after a depressingly short four days. Laura Elizabeth Podol was born on February 10, 1908 in Columbia, South Dakota. In 1938, she married Ingmar Trellstad, four years her junior, likewise a resident of Columbia. Daughter Audrey was born a year later, followed soon by a sister Janet. In 1942, Ingmar and Laura moved to Los Angeles, and in 1944, they had a third child, a son named Thomas. Around 5 on the morning of May 12, 1947, only a few hours after Thomas Montgomery was arrested for his wife's murder, police received a call about another body. A man named Bert Winfield was on his way to work in one of the oil fields near Signal Hill, when he found it lying in a field off Wardlow Road near the intersection with Locust Avenue. When Sergeant Howard Sweet and other police arrived, they found a brown-haired woman who was clothed, although her clothing was torn. Clad in a blue dress, one shoe was missing. A folded black coat was found underneath the body. The woman had been bludgeoned, raped, and strangled, with a string torn from a pair of man's pajamas found knotted around her throat. The other shoe and her purse were missing. Through laundry marks, police quickly determined that the woman was 39-year-old Laura Trellstad. Laura, Ingmar, and their three children had been living at 2211 Locust Avenue, a dozen blocks or so south of where her body was found. Ingmar told Detective Captain Lauren Martin that the day before, he and his wife had been visiting with friends. 
They were playing cards, and around 5.30, Laura decided to leave. She said that if he was going to play cards, she was going to go dancing. He really didn't think much of it, and went home afterwards to make dinner for the children. He said that he couldn't go out to search for her when she didn't return, though, as there was nobody to stay with the children. Police were able to trace Laura Trellstad to the 322 Club, a bar on 1st Street. Here she apparently had stayed drinking until about 10.30. Two bartenders, Benny Clough and Fred Hinesley, said that she had been drinking for a bit by herself, then three sailors came in. Around 10, two of the sailors left, and then about a half hour later, the bartenders refused to serve Laura anymore as she was too drunk, and she left with the company in the company of the other sailor. Police were naturally interested to track down this sailor, thinking that he might have been a suspect. But when he was finally identified as Harry Packard and questioned, they were somewhat disappointed. He accompanied her to a bus stop, and she boarded a bus. Using Packard's testimony, they tracked down a man named Cleve Dowdy, who had been driver of the bus that Laura Trellstad was put onto. He said she was very clearly drunk. The autopsy confirmed that her blood alcohol level was slightly above the legal limit, and argued with him, telling him that he had gone ten blocks past her intended stop. He hadn't, and they hadn't yet reached the stop. He said he dropped her off at Long Beach Avenue and Wardlow Road at about 11.45. There's no way he could have known it, but the stop was only two blocks from where Laura's body would later be found. And given that they had narrowed down the time of her murder to between 12.15 and 1.15, this was likely only shortly before her death. With no other leads, the lot where Laura Trellstad had been found was searched again on May 19th. Still, the missing shoe and purse failed to turn up. The last lead the police received came about a week later, when a taxicab driver named George Silva reported that he had seen a small woman walking slowly near Long Beach Boulevard. He said that he thought the woman might have been Laura Trellstad, who was 5'4". He slowed to pick her up, thinking it was a possible fare, but before he got there, a 1937 or 1938 Tan Willis stopped and picked her up. After the murder, the family moved back to South Dakota, and the records fade out. An anonymous comment on a 1947 project post about the murder of Laura Trellstad might offer a possible solution. According to the poster, who says they're the daughter of Audrey Trellstad, the two sisters came to believe that Ingmar had killed their mother. Janet said that he had buried the missing white shoe in their backyard. The commenter adds that after the move back to South Dakota, the children only rarely even saw their father, and only years later learned that he had remarried and had other children. Apparently, Audrey and Janet had differing memories of their home life. Audrey told police there weren't any problems at home, while Janet said her parents fought almost constantly. Getting only slightly more press than Rosenda Mondragon did, or should I say will, since when this murder happens, since when this happens, that murder is still four months away, was the killing of a 50-year-old woman in March of that year. Coincidentally, it took place only a handful of blocks to the south. Around 12.10 on the morning of March 11th, 28-year-old George Wickliffe, a native of Missouri, was coming off of his shift at the Santa Fe Railroad tracks at the base of Ducommon Street when he came across the body of a woman. Wickliffe told some nearby gas company workers to phone the police. 
When police arrived, they discovered the body of a middle-aged woman lying on the ground. She had been hit on the side of the face and strangled with a piece torn off her own dress. Her underwear was missing, as were her purse and both shoes. She had apparently been raped. Police noticed that Wickliffe had some lipstick on his lips. He was to admit to police that he had kissed the dead woman before notifying them. Rather unsurprisingly, he was taken into custody. Detective Marty Wynn said that tire tracks nearby, though, led them to suspect that the body had been brought in a car, which would seem to make Wickliffe just a pervert, not a murderer. The woman was rather quickly identified as Evelyn Winters, 50. She had been previously arrested for public drunkenness, drunk driving, and resisting arrest. Once she was known, it was an easy matter to track down her mother, Harriet Winters, who told police that from 1926 to 1940, Evelyn had worked for Paramount Studios in the copyright department, and from 1940 to 1942 as a legal assistant. She had formerly been married to Sidney Justin, who at that time was the head of the legal department at Paramount, but they divorced in 1941. Then she later briefly married a man named Horace Windham, but they had also divorced in 1944. As far as she knew, Evelyn had been homeless for several months, moving around from place to place. She had last seen her daughter on March 9th, at which time she gave her $5 and asked her where she was living. Evelyn said, I can't show you, mother. It's too cheap. By the next day, police found out where she had been living, the back room of a liquor store. Two bags of clothing and a book were apparently all she had. Also confirmed was the fact that she had been kicked out of her last known address in September of 1946. Showing a photo of Evelyn around various bars she was known to have frequented, they got a tip about a man named James Tiernan, employee of a bowling alley. He said that he had known Evelyn for about two years, and they often went to the library together. On the night of the 10th, he said, they were both drinking in a hotel downtown. She left around 7.30 or 8, saying she needed to go talk to someone. He stayed there. And about four hours later, she was dead. Also picked up was a Grosvenor McCabney. Police had received tips that he was acquainted with Evelyn Winters and had been seen with her shortly before her death. However, he denied he knew her. Frederick Newbar had made an examination of the body and had said that the cause of death was apparently the blow to the face, which had been a heavy enough blow to have fractured the occipital bone in her nose. In addition, her blood alcohol content was only slightly below what would normally be considered fatal. Evelyn Winters had likely been in no state to offer up any resistance to her, to her attacker. This possibly meant that the killer had strangled an already dead body. There were abrasions on her back, which seemed to indicate that the body had been dragged to the spot where it was found, probably from the car that the police noted it had been on the scene. But by the coroner's inquest on Evelyn Winters on March 17th, both Tiernan and McCabney had been released. Wickliffe was still in custody. He had a lengthy record for window-peeping and vagrancy back in Joplin, Missouri, and also in Wichita, Kansas. Police said he hadn't been ruled out. But the eventual ruling was the familiar homicide by person or persons unknown, so I suppose they didn't deem it too likely. Predictably, all these cases were linked by the media to the Black Dahlia, 
and in L.A. Noir they are as well. In the months following the discovery of the Dahlia, Los Angeles saw an explosion in sexual homicide. These five cases are only a small portion of all those recorded. Murder sometimes came in quick succession. The murder of May Lorna Preston, for instance, is often mentioned in the same media reports as those discussing the Evelyn Winters case, because the bodies were discovered at almost the exact same time. The murder of Preston, however, was solved. The fact that the media connected these to the Dahlia really isn't too much of a surprise. After all, how much London crime in the Victorian era got connected to Jack the Ripper? And while many of these did have individual features in common with the Dahlia, a cut mouth, though not nearly so pronounced, in the French case, a slashed breast in the Mondragon case, they seem more and more like someone trying to make their crime seem like the handiwork of another. If you ask me, and no small number of others as well, any connection to the Dahlia is ludicrous. The similarity amounts to a naked woman, beaten and lying in a field. Sad to say, but that's not exactly a damning similarity. It becomes even more ludicrous when you get into some of the later crimes that aren't covered here. I always did think, though, that some of these might have the same perpetrator as each other, however. I especially lean that way on the Mondragon and Winners cases due to their extreme proximity to one another. The mysterious husky blonde sex offender mentioned in the coverage of the French case I also find interesting, given that Antonio Mondragon supposedly saw his wife getting into the car of a husky blonde man before she was killed. There was also a semi-homeless woman, Naomi Tullis Cook, who was raped and bludgeoned in late 1946 in Lincoln Park, across the street from where Mondragon entered the car. My personal opinions on who, or should I say the type of person who, perpetrated these murders are, in the case of Jean French, I lean towards someone from her past. The fact that the message on the body said Tex, and she was from Texas, as were two of her ex-husbands for that matter, is a pretty notable coincidence, and I especially feel the dumping of an ex-pilot's body practically on the runway of the Santa Monica airport can't be a coincidence. The severity and savagery of the beating feels very personal. Dorothy Montgomery, I feel, very well might have been murdered by her husband. It just couldn't be proven that he had, so he got away with it. Rosenda Mondragon, it would obviously seem to be the husky blonde man in the car. Laura Trellstad, either the tall man the bus driver thought had been following her, or the driver of the Tan Willis. Given the later implications that the family had suspected Ingmar, it would be interesting to note what kind of what kind of car he had. And Evelyn Winters, possibly the same man who killed Mondragon. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to the email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. 
I also now have a Google map available marked with the locations of various episodes. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, till next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.